Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Propaganda as entertainment in China used to be really, really dull. The party bumped up viewing figures by making students and state employees watch. These days, they're glossy Hollywood-style blockbusters just bursting with patriotism. And have you seen the otters on the internet? Can you even bear their cuteness? Southeast Asia seems to obsess over otters as pets, and all that social media love might actually threaten their survival. Thing is, though, they're not even great pets. But first... Today in India, it's Republic Day. Parades and flyovers and dancing in the capital, Delhi, a spectacle broadcast across the country. The Prime Minister, Sri Narendra Modi, walking towards where the spectators greet him eagerly. Republic Day celebrates the date in 1950 that India's brand new constitution came into force, the foundations of the world's largest democracy. A later amendment enshrined the idea that the government was to be secular. But in today's India, it's hard to separate religion from politics. Last month, a mob of Hindu nationalists stormed a school run by the Catholic Church in the central state of Madhya Pradesh. They believed that a communion service held nearby for Christian children had in fact been a secret conversion ceremony. As they attacked the school, they chanted, who will protect the faith we will. It was the third assault in two months on a Christian school in the state. Hindu nationalism just keeps flaring up, particularly under Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his Bhartiya Janta Party. Christians make up about 2.5% of the population in India, but it's not just Christians who are suffering from religious discrimination. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's South Asia bureau chief and is based in Delhi. Sikhs make up about 2% of India's population. And then Muslims, of course, are about 15% of India's population. They're a much bigger target for discrimination. And when you say religious discrimination, what forms does that take? Well, it takes all kinds of different forms. I mean, you know, there's just simple harassment, uh, people being bothered on the trains for what they wear. There are boycotts of businesses. On the internet, there are trolls who go after people. There's some institutional discrimination as well. I mean, not being allowed into particular jobs or universities, for example. Uh, There's an ongoing problem in a suburb of Delhi, the capital, in fact, where the Muslims are being told you can't pray in public, but then at the same time, the government's denying them permission to build any mosques. 
you know, sectarian violence and, and discrimination in India is nothing new. I mean, in, in some ways, it used to be much worse. There were often pogroms or riots where there would be tens, hundreds, thousands of people killed. However, what's different now is that there's a kind of general nastiness. Uh, I think if you talk to anyone from any of the minorities in, in India, they'll say that they feel this kind of pressure more and more that they're pointed at as not being quite as Indian as anyone else. And there's a kind of scope and frequency of attacks by extreme Hindu nationalists which is increasing. And of course, there are some really horrible stories. For example? Well, I mean, for example, in recent months, high-profile Muslim women, uh, journalists, uh, people who've been critics of the government, an app has been created that sort of auctions them off as if it's a kind of slave market. It's just intended to insult people. But then there's also violence. Something that's happened with increasing frequency in the last 10 years is Muslims who were accused of slaughtering cows or transporting cattle for slaughter have been attacked by mobs and quite often killed, I mean, lynched. But something that is newer is public events where Hindu radicals have been holding speeches where they're really making some spine-chilling talk. There was an event north of Delhi in December where one speaker spoke to the crowd and said, basically, if, if there are just a hundred of us, we should be ready to kill two million of them. And of course, them is Muslims. And another speaker at the same event said that India's Hindus should follow the example of Myanmar. The small Muslim minority there was hounded into exile by violence. And we've talked a lot before about a general sense of Hindu nationalism throughout India and in, indeed in the government. But this is very much out in the open and, and very widespread. What is the government doing about it? The government is doing very little. There's been a refusal to outright condemn these things by top figures in the government. This government has, has stopped actually counting hate crimes. There used to be statistics on these things. There used to be statistics about you know, what numbers of minorities were in the police force, for example, uh, no longer issued. A lot of independent groups for human rights and so on have been shut down because they're largely critical of the government or seem to be supporting minority rights. It's also a fact that inside the government, there are fewer minorities in government in positions of, of any influence in ministries and so on, less than in any previous government in India's history. But it's not just a lack of action by the government. To some extent, there's been active incitement by the party in power for sectarian discrimination. How do you mean? What, what does that incitement look like? For example, there's a, an election campaign going on, and some of the government posters for the campaign uh, from the, the ruling party, the BJP, actually show Muslims in the guise of terrorists or show opposition politicians as if they're Muslim, as if that's something terrible. Some top officials have actually been quite incendiary in the, their talk directly. Uh, in the election in the state of Uttar Pradesh, which is India's most populous state, the actual sitting chief minister, who's from the ruling party, from Mr. Modi's party, he described the vote as being a vote of the 80% against the 20%. Everyone understands what he's talking about. He's talking about the 80% Hindu majority against the 20% Muslim minority. And um, the home minister, who's probably you know second most powerful man in India, during the same campaign, has repeatedly used characterizations that make it clear that his party's opponents are Muslims or panderers to Muslims. So that's the general tenor of the politics now, but does that bleed also into policy? Yes, well, it has. I mean, in some BJP-ruled states, for example, state governments have made a point of enacting pretty harsh laws against religious conversion. They sort of target, you know, minority religions such as Christianity, Islam, and make it seem as if there's some kind of conspiracy to convert large numbers of Hindus. Another way the government has legislated to perpetuate this kind of division, a couple of years ago, 
the government moved to strip India's sole Muslim-majority state of Jammu and Kashmir of its sort of semi-autonomous or its special status. And it's been reduced to basically a territory that's ruled directly from Delhi. But creating that atmosphere is, is just simply politically expedient for the BJP? Is that the idea here? Well, to some extent, yes, yeah. It used to be in the past that typically votes among the Hindu majority were divided among caste or ideology. Something that the the BJP has found under Mr. Modi is that if they can unify, consolidate the Hindu vote, they have a better chance of winning majority in the elections. And one way to consolidate the Hindu vote is to create a sort of danger enemy bogey, which often tends to be a minority. And the election looming in February in the state of Uttar Pradesh was a very crucial election because that state sends a very large number of people to parliament. So they seem to be pushing this as sectarian agenda right now for this particular election. But, you know, by pumping up this kind of notion that somehow India's 20% minorities represent some kind of threat to its 80% majority, the government is unleashing forces that could become uncontrollable and could create widespread violence. Thanks very much for joining us, Max. Thank you, Jason. A pleasure. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Battle of Lake Changjin is a war film that was released to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. Su Lin Wong is our China correspondent. The plot follows a famous battle from the Korean War when Mao Zedong's army defeated America in one of its worst ever military humiliations. Gritty, it's highly produced with the aesthetic of a Hollywood blockbuster. Go! And is heavily backed by money from the Chinese Communist Party. And how did it do at the box office? It became the highest grossing film in Chinese history and the second highest of the year in 2021 worldwide. It made just over $900 million behind Spider-Man No Way Home. And it also became the most successful war movie ever made, beating out American Sniper, which made around $500 million US dollars. So the broader context is that China is now the biggest film market in the world. And the Communist Party is pumping money into funding and boosting domestic films as it increasingly shuts Hollywood and other foreign films out of what is now the world's largest film market. 
And so do you reckon it deserves all that success? I mean, is it is it a good movie? I personally found it straight up propaganda, sort of like a Chinese version of Pearl Harbor or Top Gun. But Chinese social media users really, really liked it. They posted gushing reviews on their social media feeds. Some even posted videos of themselves eating frozen potatoes and fried flour. Like soldiers in the film, in a tribute to the hardships of that generation. And in fact, there's many patriotic films known in Chinese as Zhu or main melody films that often score hundreds of thousands of high ratings on Douban, which is the most popular film rating site in China. This reminds me a lot of a Chinese film that we've spoken about on the show a, a while back, Wolf Warrior 2, that had the same combination of plainly jingoistic but, but high production values, big Hollywood splash kind of film. Yes, so I think for many Westerners, Wolf Warrior would be the most famous Chinese film that marks the start of this broader trend that we're now seeing of the Chinese Communist Party having figured out how to make patriotic blockbusters that people actually want to go and watch. The Communist Party for decades has tried to make propaganda for people to consume, but until very recently, most have been massive flops. One famous example from 2009, the founding of a republic, was the first of a trilogy released for the 60th anniversary of the founding of communist China. And it was such a flop that Dolban disabled voting. And now we're seeing a very, very different film industry and television industry in China where you have much more popular patriotic entertainment. So this goes beyond the big screen then? So outside of blockbuster films, we're also seeing this trend in television series. In 2021, we saw a series about the party's poverty alleviation program called Mining Town score very highly on Dolban and even outrank The Queen's Gambit, which was very popular in the West last year. So it's clear from these kinds of numbers then that, as you say, the party has figured out how to make things both effective and and entertaining. I mean, how so? What, what, what have they done? That's a great question. They've done several things. One thing they've done is cast some of China's most famous film stars spanning several generations. So grandma, mom and the grandkid could all go to the movies together and watch one film and each generation's favourite stars are in these patriotic blockbusters. The party has also figured out how to collaborate with very serious filmmakers known as the so-called fifth generation who sprang to global fame in the 1980s and one such director is Chen Kai-ge, who in fact directed the battle at Lake Changjin. And this is all happening as the party is spending lots of money on getting these films out. And then I think one very important point in all of this is that China is now keeping out most American films. Almost none of the movies we would see in the UK or Australia are screened in China ever. 
So it's not like Chinese viewers are actively not going to see Eternals and choosing to go and see the battle like Changjin. But in a sense, what you were saying is that the film industry has got to the same place in China as it has in other countries like America, as it is with films like American Sniper. It is propaganda. It is glossy. It is entertaining. It gets good reviews. This is kind of just China meeting that same market. Yes, in some ways. So, of course, there are many Hollywood movies that have very strong American savior themes that really drip with American propaganda. So earlier we referenced American Sniper. Zero Dark Thirty was made in cooperation with the CIA. There are many such films. But I would also say that it's very, very different for a couple of reasons. And first is that there are many American classic films that are not just American propaganda. So a couple off the top of my head would be, you know, Apocalypse Now or All the President's Men about the criminality in the White House, Citizen Four about Edward Snowden. And and then on top of that, in America and in many other markets, there is independent news reporting and there are independent critics who are writing books, who are participating in public debate. And all of these things provide a counterweight to the official government line in whatever country. And what concerns me deeply about this trend we're seeing in China is that we're seeing a real boom in these propaganda blockbusters without any space for other perspectives that are critical of the government. Thanks very much for your time, Sulin. Thanks, Jason. Pet sounds, not not the Beach Boys pet sounds, but the sounds of pets are pretty familiar stuff. Dogs barking, cats screeching, maybe the trill of a pet parakeet. But in some places, pet sounds can be a bit more exotic. These are the calls of pet otters. In some places in East Asia and Southeast Asia, otters are very much in demand as pets. Charlie McCann is The Economist's Southeast Asia correspondent and is based in Singapore. And they're so in demand, Jason, because they are just really gosh darn cute. Okay, so the, the fundamental driver here is is cuteness. L- <laughs> let's have a look. Sh- show me some of these otters. Jason, get your phone out, open Instagram and search otters and you're just going to have such a great time. I'm cycling through here. It looks like they like being scratched. This is cute. This is unbearably cute. <laughs> and they like hiding in little boxes and corners. Oh, he's yawning. <laughs> <laughs> they have very expressive little faces, it must be said. Yeah. Oh, look at that little paw. It looks a bit like a hand. <laughs> oh, it's bath time for this one. Oh, look at him. He's like, oh, his his owner wants him to fetch the ball and he's not taking. Oh, he is. He is. He's jumping into the bathtub. He's got it. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh darn. It's not just you and me, Jason, who are gushing over these otters. There are so many other people doing this. If you scroll to the top of these accounts, you'll see that. Okay, so this one, let me scroll up, has 100,000 followers. That's probably way more than you have, Jason. Sorry. I'm not as cute as these otters. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) sorry to say. And 
100,000 followers is nothing for otters. I saw one that has 200,000 likes. They're just super popular. And what's wrong with that? This all seems like yeah, furry, harmless fun. Yeah, it seems so innocent, but that's the thing. The more that people like these pictures, the more it normalizes the idea that it's okay to keep otters as pets. But it's really not. While some are bred in captivity, others are taken from the wild. And that's just really devastating for, for otters because two of the most popular species, the Asian small-clawed otters and smooth-coated otters, have declined by almost a third in 30 years to 2019. And it's not like they didn't already face plenty of threats in the wild. So the pet trade, which has accelerated in Asia over the last few years, is only making things worse. So aside from being cute, which might well be enough, why do people want them as pets? Are they, are they good ones? No, that's the thing. They're really terrible pets. I spoke with one otter owner, Faisal Duha, of Ruma Otter Indonesia, which is the club of, of Indonesian otter lovers. Faisal loves how cute, adorable, and intelligent otters are. But he said that in practice, otters make for just really terrible pets. You can hear them screeching from miles away. They have, as he put it, a very specific smell. And by that, he meant fishy smell. They bite extremely hard. It's a bit like being attacked by a nail gun. And they just completely destroy your furniture. So what this means in practice is that people frequently take their pet otters to rescue centers. That side of otter keeping you don't see on social media. So what these cute images are doing is masking a trade that is doing a lot of damage. So like so many things, what you see on the internet and what you uh, choose to like is ultimately making some bad choices for nature. We're, we're harming the otters by loving them so hard. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, this otter fad has been turbocharged by the internet. If you look at some of the comments on these photos and videos, they often read something like, I want an otter now, and where can I get these in my country? And researchers believe that that's encouraging the trade. But what's to be done about it if there is this sort of uh, gray market trade in these things? So there is an international agreement that governs trade in wildlife. That's known as CITES. And that was amended a few years ago. It now prohibits the sale of these species of otters across international borders. The problem with that, though, is that most of the trade is domestic. And the laws banning ownership of these animals are poorly enforced in Thailand or riddled with holes in Indonesia, the countries where this is a real problem. So without better enforcement in Southeast Asia, it's likely the trade will continue to increase, which is just terrible for these beautiful creatures. So what you're telling me is I should now break the habit you just gave me of looking and liking otters online. I'm afraid, yeah. That's <laughs> what's so gotta be done, Jason, for the good of the otters. For the good of the otters, I will. Charlie, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.